Right, welcome back to Rupture Radio, everyone. This week we're going to be discussing the economic situation in Ireland and internationally coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. As I'm no economic expert myself, I'll be joined by economist Brian O'Boyle and Rupture's Sammy Mike Meister to discuss things. It is nearly taken as a given that the economic system is facing a deep crisis triggered by the pandemic. However, much has been made recently by media analysts and establishment politicians that there will be a swift recovery from this. Tanishta Leo Varadkar has been out recently claiming that the Irish economy will take back off like a rocket. Brian opens up the conversation discussing just how true this might be. The first thing to say is that nobody really knows. Um, I mean, the first part of your question was, was remarking around the fact that we've had an enormous slump, and I think everybody understands that that has happened. Um, mm-hmm. So, for example, the World Bank, the IMF, and the OECD all would have pointed out that the 2020 Great Lockdown Recession was the first time since the 1870s that over 90% of global economies were in recession simultaneously. So it's clearly something that has, um, you know, historic proportions. And for example, the chief economist from the IMF, Gita Gopantha, she would have written to say that roughly speaking, the global economy's lost somewhere between nine and twelve trillion dollars worth of output. So I mean, that's twelve. That would be twelve thousand billion dollars worth of output. Now, um, you know, we know why that happens. There was a combination of the lockdown itself. Uh, disruption to a very integrated global economy today, and then the productivity problems around social distance, and those will be the three big issues. So I think everybody understands the nature of the of the crisis, and it's also just worth quickly underlining the fact that um, there's been an enormous shift in terms of equality as well, because the poorer you are, uh, the more economically you suffered in the in the in the recession. I think it's very important because clearly, when you talk about the economy lifting back off like a rocket, well, it won't be lifting off like a rocket in places like India or Africa where they don't have a vaccine program and there's still chaos. So, I mean, it's important if you're looking at an international picture to differentiate between the developed economies and the developing economies. Now, what what we do know about the developed world is that it's almost inevitable that there will be a strong recovery insofar as if you go down very far, um, a percentage change increase is easier to attain. Do you know what I mean? So if you have a 20% decline, it's easier to have a 5 or 6% recovery because you're coming from a much lower base. Plus the fact that all of the global um, monetary authorities pumped historically large stimulus packages into the economies. And there is a relatively successful vaccine program rollout in the developed world. So we put all that together. It looks like they're saying maybe five or six percent global increase in GDP this year. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that that is very likely to be the case. But as I said, um, even at the end of next year, which is 2022, they still think that most countries in the world will not have recovered their pre-pandemic levels. And two last points, as I said already, the poorer countries in the world are still in major crisis. And if the Delta or the following variants get, get to grips with the with the system the way they may do, I mean, I was watching the news tonight and they said that there's um, an unprecedented level of patients in Irish hospitals now higher than there would be in a normal winter season. So, you know, in some ways we just don't know um, where the economy is going to go. But I think it's reasonably okay to say that in the developed world, an enormous crisis will be met with some level of recovery. 
Yeah, uh, I think that that's Brian outlined a lot of the key points there as well as some of the fundamental issues with the premise uh, as well, right? So in terms of like if the economy will recover quickly, you know, people were saying that this time last year, that, you know, uh, sure, things are running their course. We've got a few cases now. The system, the, the, the health system's robust. Don't need to worry about things anymore, really. And we're going to recover strongly into 2021. And then, of course, we had a second wave in the winter, uh, which lasted until... You know, May, and now we're we're looking at a fourth wave again now. Actually, this year, uh, right now, presently, and so to me, it, like whether we are going to recover strongly is predicated on the you know something that's actually kind of outside of economic control is the progress of the virus. Now, obviously, I don't want to overstate how out of control that is. Uh, I think the correct public health policies could uh, mitigate that 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 issue, but I think. If there's going to be another wave of uh, COVID, then there'll be immense pressure on governments internationally to strengthen, uh, tighten up public health restrictions. And then you'll have, again, obviously a, a economic contraction, which corresponds with that. So it's not necessarily the case that it's going to be a, a speedy recovery. Uh, it depends on the, on the epidemiology, I suppose. But I think Brian's probably right uh, in the sense that when things do recover and the, the virus is under control, it will be quite strong. I think the public health situation is really kind of the, the big the big question here because, you know, if I was a kind of mad scientist trying to figure out how to, you know, mess with the, the the economy as much as I could, what I would be doing right now is what Boris Johnson's doing and what other governments are doing, which is unleashing the virus in a partially vaccinated population. And then what you're gonna look what you're risking there is a is a uh, the mutation of a vaccine immune resist uh, variant of of COVID, and that will definitely send things uh, really out of control uh, in terms of the economy and as well the public health situation. So I think that that's a present danger. I think it's really uncertainties of the defining factor or the defining kind of description of what's what's going ahead. The other thing to say, I mean, you know, you can you can take your question in a narrow sense, or you can um, look a bit broader. I think. It's important also to say that even though, you know, it may well be true that a, a very, very deep recession is met by a stimulus package that helps to have a relatively short term, sharp increase in activity. The, the more fundamental question for capitalism is, will that be sustained over time? That's the question. Yeah. And there's a different answer to that question, I think. So, for example, even the IMF and the World Bank, because I had a look today, Although they are, you know, very bullish about the fact that this year, as I said, they expect about a six percent increase in the global economy, which would be about between two and three times the normal rate, depending on, you know, how you measure it. But they think already by the following year that will have fallen back by twenty five percent, so it'll be four point five percent. You know, so already they see this as an unusual uh, recovery from an unusual crisis. But if you look longer term at the system. Um, you know, it's increasingly the case that prior to COVID, the major centers of the kind of intellectual architecture of capitalism, whether it be, you know, the World Bank, the IMF, the OECD, the key economists uh, that you might hear of in terms of advising Obama and all the rest of it, the likes of Larry Summers, all these people have been increasingly pessimistic about the nature of global capitalism. So I think to finish the point, although there might well be this recovery in the short term, it's much less clear whether, it, and I would say it's much more unlikely that the recovery will be sustained over time.
Definitely, and like especially the the damage caused to global supply chains by COVID is still existing. Especially, I think Brian pointed out quite correctly that in the kind of developing world, the periphery of capitalism, uh, that there is like no real effective penetration of a vaccine program. There's not going to be immunity. I think even 2022 or 2023, um, at the way the way things are going, and so we're going to have is still continuing disruptions for like, you know, primary imports, uh, which are used for. Uh, making the the economies function in the in the developed world so that's that's a still a factor worth considering which might actually slow things down quite a bit in terms of growth before we move off this topic i had been reading various articles by both of you a few from brian in rebel and then some of you would have written an article in rupture on the shape of the recession in which you made an argument that debt was going to be a critical issue and would cut across any recovery that takes place. Although this hasn't necessarily been the case. And, and why is that at, the, at this point? Yeah, uh, I, when I first wrote that article, I was very dead set that, you know, the key question would be public debt and private debt. Uh, and I think kind of I was of the impression that, of course, the, the way that the economic situation was developing that the uh, capitalist governments wouldn't necessarily be constrained by the private by public debt and they would continue to spend money uh basically to try to keep the economy floating but that eventually that would come back to bite them in the ass uh and basically you know the debt has to be repaid and and similarly with private debt that they're all all these businesses were, were shutting down but they still have to pay uh bills wages all kinds of stuff now i think the measures taken the stimulus measures taken by in Arden, for example uh the, the government here to, for example, cover the wages of workers, to subsidize those of businesses, provide, you know, basically debt relief and debt payment moratoriums to kind of, you know, agreements with the finance sector have have significantly mitigated the dangers involved here that I first foresaw with regards to the, the indebtedness of the economy. Uh, and I think that's kind of replicated across the board in much of the developed world, they, that there were significant stimulus and support measures to, to cut across that danger. But I still think it's a more medium-term prospect, a threat to kind of the, the functioning of the economy, but not necessarily the defining question at the moment. I mean, I, I just if I jump in, I mean, the, the period after the Great Recession was in some ways paradoxical because... <clears throat> The, there's been a kind of a revolution in monetary policy, which I'll come on to in a minute. But one of the effects of this, um, coupled with a few other uh, causal factors, which I'll explain in a second, but what has happened is that global capitalism has stabilized, but it has stabilized at a quite anemic rate. So if you look, for example, and you measure the recovery in terms of months from the epicenter. So say, for example, the epicenter of a crisis is in June of 1973, one way economists measure the strength of the recovery is how quickly the economy goes back to a level of income that they would have predicted prior to the, 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 the crisis, for example. And if you look at all the big banks, you know, the likes of Goldman Sachs and uh, JP Morgan, all these guys track this, this kind of stuff. And you'll see it anywhere you want, just Google it. You'll see that, um, you know, there's a strong consensus that shows that every crisis since the 1970s has had a longer period of time um, until the pre-crisis level was reached. So there's a sort of a long-term trend whereby when the economy declines, its recovery is less robust than the previous one, and that continues on. And this particular crisis from 2008 onwards is very noticeable because it was the longest period of recovery, but the, by far the weakest recovery itself. And so, you know, if you look at that, it shows you that there are more fundamental questions than COVID in many ways. You know, I think in some ways, to be honest, the biggest 
effect from COVID is the devastation it's causing to human beings, particularly as we've already said in the developing world. I mean, there's really powerful um, report came out last year from Oxfam. They called it the the inequality virus, and they have all sorts of facts. For example, at one point, and I think it came out in January actually of this year, they were saying that at that stage there was in and around six to nine thousand. Hard to be definitive, but six or nine thousand extra people dying every day, not from COVID, but from uh, food, uh, you know, lack of access to food because they'd lost out on their informal jobs or whatever else. And it wasn't that the food wasn't being produced. It was that they weren't getting access to it because they'd lost their wages. So, but that point aside, I do think it's important to underline for listeners that, you know, global capitalism has been in a long-term period of decline. Whether you look, for example, at the at what are called zombie companies, that's not a phrase that that the, the Marxist left uses. That's a word that you get for, for example, in the Bank of International uh, Settlements. For example, you know it's it's fairly standard now to say that there are increasing numbers of companies in the system, both big and small, that survive on very cheap money. And this goes to the point I made at the start about this revolution in monetary policy. You know, traditionally, when a crisis happened, even the most right wing economists understood that you would spend money in a very short period to get them through the you know the worst of the crisis but then they would insist that you go back to a normal rate of interest and quite tight money policies to correct the kind of looseness that would have been in the system but they haven't been able to do that so for over a decade now money has been so cheap uh, that you know effectively you know one in five american companies now are on a life support of very very cheap money can't pay their way except by borrowing on an ongoing basis. This is the zombie companies. As Sammy said a minute ago, you look at debt. Debt has exploded across the system. Now, for every person who's borrowing, someone else is lending. So that doesn't necessarily say much, except to say that more and more of the capitalist class feel that the best way for them to make money is to lend it out to people at interest, as opposed to putting it into production and investment. You look at the levels of speculation in the system. Um, you look at you know the fact that the backdrop to all of this has been a very successful political strategy by the rich to reduce wages and conditions and pensions. And you see enormous anomalies here because on the one hand, capital has what would look like on paper the weakest trade unions, the cheapest money policies, fairly cheap oil, uh, very good policies for capitalists in terms of national governments, and yet. Weak recoveries, high levels of debt, high levels of zombie companies in the system. And for for most Marxists, that points to a really fundamental problem that they haven't overcome, which is a tendency for the rate of profit in the system to mm -hmm. decline. And Absolutely. that is the fundamental problem that they're going to come to. And that will remain whether they get out of this COVID fix or they don't. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a real kind of vital point to make here that, you know, COVID um, is kind of, it's going to be remembered as, you know, the COVID recession or the Great Lockdown recession, or basically, you know, the recession caused by this virus and this pandemic. But in reality, what we were seeing uh, going into 2020 20, uh, 20 even was, and towards the end of 2019, was a very early warning signs of a imminent economic crash. Like that was, that was coming. It was definitely there. Uh, you know, the German economy was going into a really rapid slowdown in its manufacturing and all the indices were pointing towards some kind of economic recession. And then what you had was COVID coming along and then it's condensing that process massively. 
but it was condensing a process that was already occurring uh, and kind of make it made it sharper. I think it was, he had a very much rougher recession than he would have had. He had things kind of unfold naturally uh, and a much more severe one and, and quicker one. But I think it was nonetheless something that was going to happen eventually. Uh, and so I think it's it's um, where people are kind of fooling ourselves now. We think we, we can get over COVID and go back to the kind of normal way of doing things. What we're going to be going into now is an economy with very weak fundamentals uh internationally so we'll have our quick growth in the first year maybe two years but then you'll go back to the period that we had between 2008 and 2020 which was a period of stagnation basically uh in most economies uh and then what you're going to then have is another another economic crisis in another decade or so uh maybe even earlier probably so i think especially if the tasks and the money tasks get turned off uh which i think many governments want to do you'll have a lot of businesses going under very quickly uh as, as brian correctly pointed out the zombie companies and so on it's, it's becoming a very growing phenomenon um and i think in ireland that's a very interesting way how it's going to play out because i think obviously the the irish capitalist class has kind of been the very much the, the ideological standard bearers of kind of austerity and neoliberalism in a certain sense uh in, in europe and that they're much they have much less room to maneuver with kind of you know the big money spending policies and debt you know getting into debt that other governments like the german and british governments and so on uh have and so they're probably likely i think more likely than other ones to turn off the money taps first or earlier and uh then we'll have a nice little laboratory experiment here or a miserable one anyways uh with regards to what's going to happen when you do that you touched on it there in terms of we could return to a period like after 2008 and that's one in which you see widespread discontent and movements re-emerging we would have had fractious movements after that period with the water charges. And I think given that we've seen many capitalist governments internationally, and most notably the Biden admin in the US, moving away from like a more traditional neoliberal approach and towards something closer to like high spending or Keynesianism or, or something in, in that vein. Do you agree that this is the trend globally? And what does that hold for Ireland? Is neoliberalism dying? And part of me says yes, and another part of me says no. Uh, and that like it's it's a process that's unfolding and it has its tendencies and counter tendencies. Um, so I think, in the sense that neoliberalism as we know it, in the kind of sense of that we experienced it for the post two thousand eight period and even before that, and from the nineties and so on, but particularly that period of the like, you know, ruthless budget cuts, austerity, and so on. I think that's gone for now, uh, but it's still going to feel like austerity and neoliberalism for working class people. Uh, and so, and that's partly because, well, the money is going to keep getting spent, I think, for a while. So you have kind of some somewhat kind of Keynesian kind of idea there. Uh, obviously, that's being quite crude about it. But then at the same time, we're going to have attacks on pay and conditions, on rights, uh, on workers and so on. And so you're going to have a combination of kind of the traditional spend money to get out of the crisis policies with, you know, vicious attacks on the working class. Uh, and I think a good model to look at here to see where things might be going is Japan. Uh, which is kind of kind of a Keynesian neoliberal model, is what I refer to it as. I think other people obviously refer to it as well, but that's kind of what I, how I conceive it. Where you've had now since I think the 90s have been a period of very difficult economic situation, and they've been pumping money into the economy for God knows how long, uh, and trying to do economic stimulus whilst also implementing more or less new liberal reforms. Uh, so I think that's that's an interesting potential dynamic that we're going to see unfolding is is that kind of Keynesian neoliberalism synthesis. Yeah, I mean, I, I would I would agree with a lot of that, and I, and one of the challenges in in defining this is that it's difficult to, or at least there are different ways to define what neoliberalism is, and so 
if you define it narrowly and you define it in terms of sort of economic policy, you're probably on the strongest ground to argue that for the moment. But let's remember, it's in the context of a very, very deep crisis. So it's very hard to generalize from a very unique set of situations. Like, I don't think you should say we're in a paradigm shift because uh, the likes of Joe Biden, who's just come into office um, and wants to be able to sort of give a vision. And a lot of it can be at the level of rhetoric, because even people like Adam Tooze, who argues that there is this shift, I mean, in the end, they recognize the numbers are quite narrow or the numbers are fairly modest. Like if you look at the figures, the you know figures are between four and six trillion for America. And that's an enormous figure in one sense, right? But even if they spent it over sort of eight years, it's one quarter of the size of the America, maybe one, one quarter, even one fifth the size of the American economy in one year. Do you know what I mean? So if you divide that by eight, you're talking about a fifth divided by eight. So it's about two, two and a half percent of GDP across each year. It's not that big of a stimulus. Like it's, it's, a, it's a change in direction. But for me, first of all, you've got to recognize that it's in the context of America being really badly hit by COVID. I mean, there was a there was a period there, and you might have read it in the article, where um, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan were looking to sort of estimate how bad it was going to get. And one of them had said, I think it was JP Morgan had estimated that the, you know, the worst period, which was going to be for them, April, May, June of last year, they suspected or they estimated that the economy would decline by 14%. Goldman Sachs estimated 24%. In the end, it was 33%. So, I mean, even now, America has 10 million less jobs than it had before COVID. So clearly there has to be uh, an immediate response to COVID. Now, the more interesting question is, is Biden recognizing that, for example, because American capitalism had the most arguably, you know, systematic and consistent neoliberal policies over four decades, are they recognizing that that has actually undermined in ways their own competitiveness because of the infrastructural deficits? Are they worried about the fact that at some point you can't govern if there's so many people angry and losing out and falling behind? You can't govern them. So, you know, was a Quinton Hogg, the conservative, said, if you don't give people some reforms, eventually they'll give you a revolution. Mm. I think there is self-interest in all of this. I think a lot of it is rhetoric. I think, you know, there may be some short-term change in policy. But let's be clear, neoliberalism in the end is a political strategy. It's not only an economic strategy. And insofar as it's about a strategy to revive the interests of the capitalist class, they're not going to move away from the big victories they've won over workers in terms of organized labor. That's definitely not going to happen. And, you know, that's, and and for me, you know, you, you you probably saw it yourself, Sammy, when you're reading about it. I mean, when you read any article and the first part of it is it talks it up. And then the second part of it is Congress may not pass all of this because <laughs> there is so much, uh, you know, anger and resistance from American capital. I mean, American capital will just say what we think they'll say. We will not be competitive. And that argument will be made. And so a little bit like when Biden floated the idea of having a 21 percent effective or sorry, not effective, but but a headline rate of corporation tax, that's already been watered down to 15%. Now, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah, and the truth as well is, is that the, the percentage that you actually collect, the effective rate is always lower than that. And there's no obvious connection between the two. So it's very easy to say, let's have a headline rate of 15%. Unless you do something to eradicate the loopholes, 15% of, you know, of nothing is still nothing, you know? So in other yeah. words, I'm skeptical, but I do understand that at the moment, 
there isn't, I agree with you on the fact that there will not be um, the kind of standard model of austerity which went with neoliberalism after the Great Recession because that would be counterproductive after a great lockdown. If you've locked everything down and you're trying to revive things, the last thing you need is to cut again. And they know from that, from bitter experience, that they can't do it. And the final point I make in Ireland, in Ireland of course, is, is that there is political blowback from the austerity years and they don't have it all their own way. So although there was quite a lot of economic success for the system through the austerity years, it has created gaps and a lot of anger, which has been, you know, has moved to the right and to the left. And so they're also conscious of not imposing austerity in a moment where they're relatively, their legitimacy is lower than it has been for three or four decades. Yeah, definitely. I think that those are all important factors. Like, I think Brian kind of makes a point that we are kind of in exceptional times and therefore you can't kind of predict what the new status quo is going to be in a period of such instability, right? It's going to, it's, it's going to, have to wait till the dust clears. But I would also say that, you know, the, the new kind of economic, the new hegemony in terms of economic ideas is usually determined in the process of crisis. Uh, you know, the Keynesianism came out of the Great Depression in a certain sense, neoliberalism out of the recessions of the 70s and 80s uh, and so on and so forth and I, and I imagine that the similar process will unfold here whereby you won't have something that's like some i don't necessarily think you have some radical break with neoliberalism but i think you will see something new emerging that's qualitatively different which incorporates probably in my mind something uh, that contains both keynesian and neoliberal uh, kind of a uh, theory and, and and practice so i think that's why i point to japan because i think they're they're way ahead of the curve on this I want to ask a question because, because to my mind, I mean, I, I, you know, the first thing is I'm humble enough not to think I know the answer. But I just, the question I would pose to anybody who thinks there's that there's sort of a paradigm shift in the often, and you haven't fully nailed your colours to the mask one way or the other. But mm-hmm. you know, my thing would be: look, when neoliberalism emerged, it emerged in a time when it was sort of almost like back to normal. If you go back through the longer sweep of capitalist history. The capitalist class tend to prefer liberal style ideologies. In other words, they Mm. prefer the idea of um, more commodification, less less, um, support for working people, uh, because those things help to keep wages down in their own international, in their own national context. And competitiveness is still the watchword. I mean, competitiveness is still what they all talk about in terms of keeping. And even Abenomics that you're referencing in terms of Japan is about trying to have a stimulus that gets the Japanese economy growing again. But at the same time, that's like, you know, they have like a short-term strategy of Keynes and then long-term make the economy more neoliberal, make it more competitive over time. And I just wonder, until they find an alternative to neoliberalism, in other words, until they find a strategy that can replace the one they have, which is about basically each national ruling class keeping its own working class, um, you know, in as much precarity as need be to keep wages and costs as low as possible in the context of of a global economy. I just, I'm not sure I can see, you know, in other words, when Keynesianism emerged, it emerged in a very specific context in which it was possible for capital to make a deal for all sorts of reasons. Mm-hmm. But the fundamental reason is the one we talked about earlier. Profit rates had recovered. Yeah. And I until, until profit rates recover for them, in other words, un, unless they find a strategy, I don't think they're wedded to neoliberalism as an absolute, but I do think they're wedded to it insofar as 
they will not be convinced to move away from it unless there's a recovery in the rate of profit. And if there's no recovery in the rate of profit, their go-to least worst option is to keep their neck, their, their foot on the neck of working class people via a, a form of neoliberalism. That would be my sense of where they'll go. Um, so I don't doubt that they might change their rhetoric a bit, and I don't doubt that there might be some more element of spending. But there are limits there, Sammy, because if you had big public spending programs and you know your own international capitalist, your own national capitalist class starts to say, who's going to pay for this? They're not going to pay for it. Like <laughs> They're yeah. just not going to want to pay for it. So do you see what I'm saying? In other words, yeah. the Keynesian strategy is less straightforward for them because it means potentially lower levels of competitiveness in a way that neoliberalism replacing Keynesianism didn't have that problem for them. And if we go back to the context of long-term declines in profitability, to me, their instinct is to go back to kind of neoliberal-style politics in those circumstances. Yeah, I think, like, that's a, that's a, I agree mostly with what you're saying here in terms of, like, it, it is all about the rate of profit here and actually driving that upwards and restoring profitability. And if uh, whatever... You know, if Keynesianism doesn't do that and they don't have any other ideas, they will revert to what they already have been doing, which is neoliberalism. Um, and so I think in that that case, you're you're definitely right. But I would also say now, in the context of you know global competition and you know actually each capitalist class wanting to compete against the other on a national basis uh, and, and trying to strengthen their own hand, what you have now is a situation where the global supply chains were disrupted now for a whole year. It's going to take time for those to kind of reestablish themselves. And I think the tendency now we're going to be seeing as a result of that, which probably won't be permanent, but I think it's a real thing that's happening, is a process of regionalization. It's that production is happening in a more localized uh, area uh, and, and is not necessarily going around the world five times to get you, you know, your pencil or whatever. So I think that's kind of a process which is occurring. And in that context, you already have a historically weak working class which isn't really in a position to, to wage a fight back because firstly, it's stunned by the economic crisis. Uh, and secondly, it doesn't have the organizational strength to, to mobilize uh, and act uh, nor the ideological leadership to do so. Uh, and so the national capitalists, and for example, countries like America are already well positioned to, to keep their foot on the neck of the worker whilst also protect, acting in a protectionist manner uh, against other kind of capitalist uh, industries from abroad, uh, in, you know, international competition and so on. So I think you could see a, a mix there uh, of both the worst of both worlds for, for workers. So and now I'm not saying it's certainly a thing that's going to happen. Uh, you're correct in that. I'm definitely not nailing my clothes to the mass in that one. Uh, so I think that's, that's a possibility. I think it's also very possible that what you're saying is, is 100% on the ball as uh, our other views. But that's kind of where I am at the moment. But just one small quick thing, which would yeah. be sort of pushing in Sammy's direction. Because again, I, I'm I'm open to, I mean, I don't know, none of us really know what's going to happen. But I mean, one, one, one way to read the stuff, the recent stuff on tax is in that vein to sort of say, look, we know that we all need to compete, but by individually being so cutthroat, you know, the kind of Thomas Hobbes argument that if you have competition just without any kind of coordination, the whole system can actually work worse for us, you know. Well, in a way, you know, you could read this as none of us are going to be able individually to increase our corporate tax rates because we know that that will, you know, leave us relatively less competitive. So the way to do it is for us all to act together and cooperate to sort of increase them simultaneously so that everyone is no less, you know, the relative positions don't change. 
and that allows us a bit more money for our infrastructure. And I do think they are a bit worried about the kind of, particularly the populist right, to be honest. And I mean, yeah. it's a funny thing because obviously the radical left often sees, and it's there's a lot of truth in this, that there's sort of a good cop, bad cop for capitalism, whereby the neoliberal system operates when it's relatively uh, functional for capital. And then they rely on the nasty side of the far right when they really need them. And that's yeah. there's no doubt that that's true. But like that's also at a very le- high level of abstraction because in the end, of course, the neoliberals would prefer not to rely on the far right if they don't have to. I mean, they don't want an enormous crisis mm-hmm. that leaves them in a very vulnerable situation. I mean, you know, the capitalist class throughout the 30s and 40s was not feeling very confident about where it was going to end up for them. So the point I'd make is that it may well be the case that they are looking at the the need for some legitimacy in the center ground for them, they're, they're you know, quote unquote, they, as we we would call it, the extreme center. But, you know, you could so you could make some arguments that way that would shore up your argument that in the end, you know, they recognize that it's difficult to sustain that cutthroat individualized form of neoliberal competition on an international level if you want to hollow out your middle class, your infrastructure, your legitimacy. And so maybe from their own self-interest, they might shift for a while if they can do it in a coordinated way. So that, I mean, that's, you know, that's possible. A big factor or central factor in all of this is is Ireland's place as a global tax haven. Starting today, a two-day summit is taking place in Venice. Like what Brian was saying, where you have a lot of nations uh, gathering to discuss an accord, which would restrict companies' ability to avail of tax loopholes. There's been a proposal from the US for a 15% minimum tax rate, which will likely be heavily resisted by the Irish establishment and has been up to this point, obviously with the backing of our own domestic capitalist class. To what degree does Ireland's position as a tax haven influence the actions of the Irish establishment and restrict their movements in global development? Well, I mean, I think it's it's absolutely fundamental in, in three or four different ways. Um. People often think of a tax haven and they might think again in a quite narrow way. First of all, maybe like Caribbean islands, you know, that there are these tiny nations have nothing else to use except their tax sovereignty. And so they, you know, from their own self-interest, they allow countries to, or sorry, large companies to use their tax system uh, to their own advantage. And there's an element of truth in that, but it's very important to say that the tax haven infrastructure is not centered in places like the Grenadas of the world or the Cayman Islands. It's centered in the city of London and Wall Street and on uh, the Nikkei. You know, in other words, it's in the very central core of capitalist um, of the sorry of the capitalist system. And Ireland's role in all of that, if you want, there are there are good papers. I can give you a link to them afterwards. Um, there's one in Nature magazine actually, which is a scientific journal. Um, which looks at the kind of role that Ireland has played historically. And there's a consensus that Ireland is one of, you know, is it the top three? Is it the top five? Is it the top one, 10? You know, but it's always in the list of the most important tax havens in the in the world. And Ireland links up, you see, a lot of international capital that flows from America into Europe. That's its main role. Mm-hmm. In other words, American companies that have high levels of intellectual property use Ireland in particular for their tax evasion and avoidance strategies. That's what they do. And so from the Irish ruling class's point of view, I think there are four big advantages. First of all, if you look at the national statistics, there are 200,000 people in the state 
either individuals or tax units, other words, in other words, married couples, who earn over €100,000 a year. So I'll say that again. 200,000 of our tax units out of 2 million, so about 10%, earn over 100 grand. But their average earnings in 2020 were, was 181,000. So it's like a long way ahead of 100 grand, if you see what I mean. Those people are the people, you know, a large section of that group that, you know, that are earning those high wages are linked to the Irish tax haven. They're corporate lawyer, uh, lawyers. They're the people who work in the Irish Financial Services Centre. They're, um, you know, business services companies, which most people don't know what they do. So the whole range of these people, the barristers, the solicitors, the accountants who are linked on one way into the tax haven and on the other way into support base for Fine Gael. I mean, who do you think gave 26% of the vote to James Gagan today in, <laughs> in the leafiest suburb of of the country, a guy who never ran for public office before, if he ran as an independent, he would have got 400 votes or 100 votes or whatever he got, but he got thousands of votes because the people who vote for Fine Gael recognise that, the, that there is a sizable minority of the country who do very well out of tax uh, policies. Yeah, yeah. One of the fallacies of the far right is that there's this like Illuminati of 10 or 15 people who run everything. Actually, there are, you know, Unfortunately, a couple of hundred thousand people who do very well out of the Irish tax haven. And that gives them high levels of economic wealth. It plugs them into the international system. It attracts foreign direct investment into the country, which itself creates 200,000 jobs, which themselves pay on average 60 grand. And crucially, it gives a lot of legitimacy to right-wing ideas because if you look at any set of comments on an economic policy, if I write an article for the journal, what do I know is going to happen? People attack you. You'll run the foreign, the multinationals will all leave. You'll run them out of the country. We'll have no jobs. So, you know, any ethical, moral argument goes out the window because what we've got to do is follow the logic of tax evasion for multinationals because that's the only way we can apparently have an economy. So it gives them all sorts of interlocking advantages. It gives them power. It gives them high levels of of economic um, wealth and income. It gives them a group of supporters for the Irish establishment and it gives them a wider layer of legitimacy in terms of how the Irish society is structured and how the economy is structured. So it's important to see the tax haven as a very central part of Irish capitalism. Yeah, I'd have to say I agree with Brian there on on most everything. It's uh, just though it's it's very fascinating how people kind of think about and talk about Ireland as a tax haven and the, our situation with the corporate tax regime and so on and so forth. Brian made a very relevant and and correct comment that whenever you uh, write something or or say something publicly that kind of questions this, even you're inundated with all sorts of comments about how oh well, there's all the jobs. You just want to destroy the economy, blah, 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 blah. And it doesn't occur to anybody that, you know, we're effect- they're effectively admitting to being held hostage by these multinational companies uh, in an economic sense, and that uh, they're all okay with it. So it's it's a very kind of a a, a grim situation from that perspective. Uh, and so that is the basis on which Fine Gael and to, uh, I think, a lesser extent, Fianna Fáil, earn their, their stripes. Uh, and that they win the confidence of the capitalist class, uh, both domestically and internationally, through how you know friendly, quote unquote, they can make this place for business, 
uh, and then in exchange, what they get is you know friendly media coverage, funding through you know these dinners or whatever that cost two thousand euros to enter, all these kind of stuff, uh, and then on top of that, a kind of an apparatus here of ideological legitimacy. Uh, to their, their, their to all of their actions as so, so spills over of course into their policy towards housing healthcare and so on if you take a laissez-faire approach to multinational companies being here and and, and making huge profits of course it's gonna the same logic must apply to the, the crisis in housing and healthcare uh, so I think it is really a dominating factor in how the, the establishment in this country thinks is, that, that question, the fact that we are basically a, a semi-imperialized nation, uh, and that these, these uh, American and Canadian and British and European, uh, mostly American and European companies are just dominating the economy. Uh, so I think, you know, and it does go back to points to the what, what we discussed earlier about the rate of recovery, that actually in Ireland there are two different rates of recovery are occurring, in which you have uh, last year you had a 10% contraction in the economy for domestic industries, uh, and so on, a huge amount of unemployment. And then in pharmaceuticals, you had a growth rate of nearly 20%, uh, which are all foreign-owned. Uh, and I think that's that's a real kind of dynamic, which is at play. Fine Gale and so on are very happy to, to stay in power. Or they have very much have the confidence uh, of, of capital to stay in power insofar as that kind of status quo is maintained, as long as the foreign multinational companies are, are, are making bank. And they always are under how Fianna Gael run things and Fianna Fáil as well. So I think that's uh, definitely the, the key thing that will inform how they go to any international summit or meeting uh, that, that takes on the question of corporation tax or global tax rates. Yeah, I mean, and the other the other point that I would make that's important is that the um, the tax haven has a very central role in the Irish housing crisis as well because if you look and go back to when Fianna Gael came into office 2011, uh, because the Irish capitalist class themselves had traditionally favoured uh, property and construction as opposed to getting trying to compete on an international level with companies that had a lot more technological capacity than them, when the housing market collapsed in 2008, it was an unusually severe crisis for their wealth. You know, the Irish rich really felt the crisis. Mm. And NAMA was one response to that. But actually, from 2011 on, they hired in John Moran, who was, uh, you know, an international capitalist um, who was plugged into Zurich Capital. He was one of the on the board of Zurich Capital. He had real connections with international finance, and he was brought in to the top job in the Irish civil service in the Department of Finance, second most important job in the whole of the um, civil service. Mm. And if you look, it's in the papers, but there was freedom of information requests showed that in the next, I suppose, about 18 months, maybe two years, there were 65 meetings between the Department of Finance and international vulture funds. And uh, Michael Noonan was at, at least at eight of those. And, you know, the strategy was bring in a wall of money uh, and do so on the basis that you're going to set up these Section 110 companies that are, uh, Section 110 just means that's the legislation that they were formed under Section 110 of the 1997 um, Tax and Consolidation Act. But anyway, the point is, is that these companies allowed the profits that they made in the Irish housing market to be tax-free. Mm -hmm. And so when the market was on, on the ground, it was restabilized and reflated by international capital. And the price that we're paying now for that 
is that they have dominated it. They have linked up with a whole series of Irish developers yeah. who are now monopolizing land banks. There's only two or three uh, builders in the country now that actually have the capital to build. Yeah. And so there's an enormous slowdown in supply. And, you know, there are all sorts of implications in terms of the, the, the health of the market. But the one obvious thing that has happened is that rents have gone through the roof because there's been very little supply very uh, and house prices have gone up massively as well. And so we are, I mean, us three know this, but it's worth really underlining the point that the housing crisis isn't a crisis for everybody. For a small minority, it's an enormous opportunity. And it's a human tragedy and it's a human crisis. And actually, it's not really a housing crisis because crises are usually things that happen to you when you don't want them to, not things that you organize yeah. and orchestrate and engineer. The Irish government gets away in many ways, with the, with the population calling it a housing crisis, it's a housing. It was an engineered disaster for ordinary people in order to revive the profits, the, the household wealth of the elites, and to sustain one of the two or three most important sections of Irish capitalism, which was the construction sector. So all of that is linked very strongly back to the international capitalist uh, nature of Ireland now, and particularly to its ability to attract, as, as Sammy was saying, to attract these international capitalists in, and they used a particular variant of their tax evasion policies, among other things that they did for them uh, from 2011, 2012 on. And it was in around, there was a time lag of about two years, and then the housing crisis emerged, and the housing crisis is still there now. And, um, you know, so the tax haven has also really destroyed so many people's lives um, in the housing sector final word on this so we would remark quite often that the socialist movement or the working class learns from each struggle and takes on the lessons say from the water charges or debnums now recently both of you would have touched on earlier how the, the approach in the past and the and the lashback that would have come has certainly given lessons to the establishment and how they approach implementing whether it is austerity or cutting wages so final thing is just to to ask whether given this economic situation or perspective what in your view is the is the purview for the future or the immediate future, anyway. Something that me and Brian will, will definitely agree on here is that the, the tax are coming down the road uh, when it comes to taxing the working class by, by the government. Um, and I think all you need to do is look at how they have approached pandemic unemployment payment uh, in order to see what their strategy is, which is basically comes almost like a salami strategy where you shave off bits here and there, create new conditions in order to kind of divide the opposition to any cuts. And then what you have is then kind of a rolling back of the whole thing, which is definitely what, what's going to be happening. Uh, so you're going to be seeing all sorts of attacks on, on workers. Now, whether or not that will be immediate or as, as severe as previously, I'm not sure. Um, by previously, I mean 2008 and post, in the post-2008 period. Um, the question here is that it did the, what's going to prompt, I think, attacks on workers more than anything else is if they have to kind of get, you know, Fiscal responsibility, or get the budget under control, so-called, or whatever. And I don't, and that's not immediately on the cards. I think uh, that might be next two, three years. Uh, might be sooner. Who knows? Uh, really, is what, what they're thinking. But I think uh, it's there's definitely some sort of attack coming down the road. Uh, it's a question of how severe and who it's targeted at. Again, it's important to be clear. So. Uh, people might say that because we're not going to have austerity budgets in the traditional sense we got used to after after the Great Recession, that we won't have austerity. It's important to say, you know, Keynes was a smart guy and he pointed out to the ruling class that it's easier 
to take people's wages off them through inflation than it is to cut their wages. And there's been talk, I don't know if people, if either of you saw in the papers this week, there's, you know, there's been big increases in people's cost of living mm-hmm. over the last few years. There's, they're talking about increases in the cost of gas, electricity, petrol, um, insurance, uh, childcare costs. These are all, I mean, Ireland already has very high costs, but these costs are going up. Now, the the point I'd make there is, is that these costs are like, you know, multiples, maybe six, seven, eight percent increases. Whereas if you look at the level of wage increases in the country, for example, last October, the public servants were meant to get an increase of, I think at the time it was meant to be 3%. They used the chaos and the fear of COVID to restrict that to 1%. Mm -hmm. So that's a pay cut. I mean, that's a pay cut for workers straight away. And, And from memory, and again, I have to check it, but I think there's a 1% again the following year. And so uh, they've already managed to use COVID to dampen down ex- expectations for workers in the public sector. And usually that's also useful for them because then it gives a barometer for attacks in the private sector. Mm. Now, we know that there was something like 800,000 workers on either the, the pandemic unemployment payment or the temporary wage subsidy. And in both cases, workers would have had less money coming in than they would during their wages. And so, you know, there's another pretext or another context in which individual employers can say to their employees, we're struggling. It might well be true in some cases. It may not be in others, but we're struggling now. We're going to have to make you take a pay cut. So you could see pay cuts across the board that way. A third way that they're going to try and sort of push a neoliberal right wing economic agenda is, as Sammy said, around debt and around the fiscal rules. So, you know, we notice, for example, that although they borrowed uh, 40 billion. They didn't take it from the richest people in Ireland. In fact, they give the richest people in Ireland mm. interest payments because they've now increased their debt. So who's going to pay that back? We're going to pay that back. So workers will pay this money back. And you have Cliff Taylor in the Irish Times, the chief economic writer in the Irish Times, now talking about the fact that there will need to be you know, prudence and we need to make sure that we cut. So there is a sense in which already they're starting to beat the drum of we need to move back in line with previous economic policies and so on. And so all of these things are ways of imposing austerity without actually having to impose it in the in the traditional sense of actually cutting things. So I think it's important to see workers uh, for workers to see that in the end, what matters to you is your real wage in relation to your costs and your social wage coming through your taxes back to you. And if they're being cut in any way at all, well, then you're facing austerity. And as Sammy says, they're very committed to doing that. The other point, sorry for going on, is don't forget as well that the Irish ruling class was very successful in the austerity years at driving a really strong uh, competitiveness agenda, whereby the European Commission, and I read this in, in preparation for today, the European Commission had a report that said that productivity increased across the decade by 34% but real wages went down by 17% in Ireland. So that's the context in which they're operating. In other words, they've already had a big, as they call it, the right-wing economists call it, the heavy lifting was already done. So they're in a good position to, you know, in other words, the Irish capitalist class got the Irish economy to become more competitive in the period up to the Great Recession. That's why Ireland had the fastest growing economy from 2013 to 2018. So again, they've got some wriggle room. They need to invest. 
but they will use sort of the non-traditional strategies to sort of discipline the working class over time. And and I think we definitely agree on that. And, and of course, the big thing then will be what will working class people do to resist that and how organized will they get and how well will people, um, you know, I suppose in the end get organized uh, to push a different agenda. And there is hope. I mean, you know, if you look at the... Um, at the polls and all the rest of it. I mean, the last national election uh, was the most left-wing election in the country because people are sick of austerity and people are, can recognise in increasing numbers the levels of inequality and the level of injustice in this economy. So I think, although we haven't seen an enormous fight back just yet, we do know there's enormous anger in society. And that enormous anger in society um, may well be um, harnessed by, for example, a, re a revived housing movement in the aftermath of the of the crisis, and that those are the kinds of things that left have to be involved in, because um, the you know we do know that when workers get organised, for example, as people said about the, the water charges, has been the obvious most recent example on an economic issue. Uh, it's possible to push them back. Yeah, it, it's clear that the the spark for a fight back is there, and it's just about how the left engages with that. But I think that's a good note to finish on. Certainly more optimistic. So I think we should leave it there for today and I'll just say thanks a million to both Brian and Sammy for joining me today uh, we'll have to get both of you back on in the near future and people can find Sammy's writing in Rupture or linked below and I'll link anything that's been discussed here and Brian's in Rebel I'll link a few articles that Brian has written and I believe Brian you're also writing a book at the moment that people might be interested in the book is written I'm, I'm, I've just got a postscript to write on the, the stuff around this new tax deal but the book um, just called Tax Haven Ireland is written with uh, co-written with Kieran Allen and it'll be out in November so I'm Fantastic. happy to come back on that yeah both you and Kieran uh, on then so thanks a million and uh, yeah thanks for everyone for listening and I'll see you next time thanks a million thanks for having us thank you you wake up and your head's fucked you stick your trousers on and you last bit of makeup you last coat button falls away